Well, we begin a new sermon series today in the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going to start at the beginning. If you don't have a Bible, you can download all sorts of free apps on your smartphone. We'd encourage you to get one. If you, if you want to get a Bible, we have some out available in the lobby. We'd love to give that to you, and that would be our gift to you because we want you to read the Scriptures. We want you to know the Word of God. I'm not going to do a lot of setup. I'm going to jump right into Mark chapter 1, verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, please uh, read along with me. Verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. I want you to imagine that you're sound asleep, cozy in your bed, blankets tucked up, warm, and all of a sudden someone bursts in and dumps a bucket of cold ice water on your head and says, Wake up! I have something you've got to hear. The most important announcement. That's kind of like what Saturday mornings are at my house with my daughters, except for instead of something important, it's usually, can we please watch My Little Pony cartoons, right? The, 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 the sense in which Mark launches into the gospel of Jesus Christ is this urgent, wake up, pay attention. I have got some news to share with you. Indeed, Mark is known as the, the gospel of urgency, the, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark's is unique in its pace. It's the shortest of the four gospels. It is intense. It is wildly um, urgent. It says, Jesus is here. Jesus demands your attention. Listen to the story. Listen to the news. It's Jesus. In fact, the gospel of Mark uses the word immediately, Dozens of times. There have been times when I've read through the gospel mark and I've felt like I need to catch my breath afterwards because it's so fast-paced. It's so urgent. Jesus is not just a distant theological idea. Jesus is a real person entered into history with a message of salvation and repentance and forgiveness and you gotta pay attention. And in even the first eight verses... Mark's launched into like four different things. He's already, he's already set it up. He's given us the prologue. He's given us the scene for Jesus to enter. And so as you read the gospel of Mark, and I would encourage you to read through the gospel of Mark, I would encourage you to read and look for all the immediately's and all of the action and all of the ways that Jesus interacts with people and the ways that Jesus interacts with demons and the ways that Jesus interacts with disease and the way that Jesus interacts with sinners and with religious people and the conversations that he has. The Gospel of Mark is roughly divided into two halves. The first half dealing with the person of Jesus. It says here that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And about halfway through, it concludes, there's a story where Jesus is speaking with Peter and Peter confesses. He says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of God. 
And then the next verse reads that from there, Jesus began to suffer. He entered into his time of passion, his suffering, his ultimate crucifixion, his death on the cross, and his ultimate resurrection for our forgiveness. The second half of the Gospel of Mark really deals with his work. So the first half is his person. The second half is his work. It's not quite that neat and, tight, neat and tidy, but it almost is. The person and the work of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark. We, uh, you know, will be taking some snapshots from Mark. If you want some supplementary reading material as you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, I would recommend to you this book called King's Cross by uh, pastor and author Tim Keller. He is a pastor in New York City. Many of you are, I'm sure, familiar with him. And King's Cross is kind of Tim Keller's uh, running commentary, as you were, through the Gospel of Mark. And so uh, myself, the other pastors, will be kind of using this as one of the source materials as we go through the Gospel of Mark. But I want you to see the urgency, the sense of urgency that Mark launches with. And, and I will say this to you, one of the primary purposes that I wanted to preach through the Gospel of Mark and why we as the elder team decided to start is because we have a lot of projects ahead of us as a church plant. We have a lot of governance documents to write. We've got a lot of bylaws to sort out. We've got budgets to adjust. We've got statements of faith and doctrine and vision and values and all that stuff to write. And I want us, I, I want us with all of my heart to remain focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ as we launch into this new chapter as a church body. I, I, all of those other things are good. They're not bad things and they deserve our attention. But if we lose Jesus in the middle of that, we're in a world of trouble. Amen? We must stay focused on Jesus. And so what better way than every Sunday to gather together, open the scriptures, and read the gospel of Jesus. And indeed, that's what Mark himself says. It's not the gospel of Mark. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We'll unpack that in a minute. But I want to give you some introductory information just so you can kind of understand who our author is and what this book is. It bears the name of Mark. He's also known as John Mark. There were a lot of John's, very common name during this time and in this region. So John, also known as Mark. We see that most uh, specifically in Acts 12, 12. So John Mark or just Mark as he became known. We know that uh, John Mark or Mark is also the cousin of the early church planter Barnabas. Cousin or relative, the, the, the Greek's a little bit fuzzy, but we'll just go with cousin. Some translations I've seen say nephew. We're not entirely sure what the relation is there, but he's some sort of relation to Barnabas. He partnered with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Indeed, he actually traveled with them up until a point in which he said, I don't want to go any farther. I want to go back to Jerusalem. I'm too far away from my hometown. And he bailed. And it actually led to conflict between Paul and Barnabas. I know, shocking, right? That church leaders would fight with each other. Paul and Barnabas actually ended up splitting ways because Barnabas, in his encouraging, gracious way, said, hey, Let's bring John Mark with us on our second missionary journey. And Paul says, I can't work with that guy. He bailed. They parted ways. Later we see, however, some really good news that in both Colossians and in 2 Timothy, we see that Paul says, Mark has been very useful to me. It seems that there was some sort of a reconciliation. That, that John Mark maybe came back and apologized or Paul softened his stance. We don't know exactly what happened, but there was a reconciliation. And the, late, the last letter, indeed 2 Timothy, the last letter that Paul ever wrote says, I've loved John Mark. He's been very useful to me. He's been a great partner in the ministry. We also see that Mark was a ministry partner of the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter. We see this in uh, 1 Peter 5, 
13. I'm going to come back to that in a minute because that's an important point. But I want to highlight for you, in Mark's gospel, there's, a, there's an unusual detail. There's an unusual story that only Mark's gospel contains. This is what it says. This is the arrest of Jesus. This is when Jesus is being arrested. It says, a young man followed him, followed Jesus, with nothing but a linen cloth around his body. Basically, uh, his pajamas, or he was sleeping and just wrapped a sheet around himself. And they, the soldiers, seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Odd story, only found in the gospel mark. It's a very unusual detail. Not sure why you're telling me about dudes falling in the middle of the night, wrapped in a sheet, running away naked when the soldiers come, but thank you. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable, so I give it to you. But many Bible scholars and commentators believe that this is a reference to John Mark himself. That John Mark was possibly, he, he wasn't one of the apostles, he wasn't one of the close disciples of Jesus, but he might have been in the entourage, if you will, that followed Jesus as one of the disciples. And, and he may have been nearby, he may have been present when Jesus was arrested and that when, he, when the heat came on, he ran away, and it was actually so humiliating, he, he ran away naked because they grabbed the linen cloth as they were trying to arrest him. John Mark, between this, between you know, bailing on, on uh, Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, maybe he's got some maturing to do. Maybe he's got some growing to do. It's an interesting detail. Now, I also want to say this. Many scholars and commentators believe that while Mark was the author of this gospel, of this, of this book, his primary source material came from none other than the Apostle Peter himself. In fact, some people call the Gospel of Mark the Gospel of Peter. Peter, it is believed, actually was the one who told the stories, who recounted the memories, and Mark was the one who wrote it down. We get this from a variety of early church fathers, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Origen. This one here, I'm going to read this quote to you. This is from Papias. He was an early church bishop, and this is what he says. This is what Papias tells us. Papias says, the presbyter used to say this. The presbyter means elder. It's probably John, the apostle John. The apostle John used to tell us this. Mark became Peter's interpreter, and he wrote accurately all that he remembered not indeed in order of the things said and done by the Lord, for he had not heard the Lord, nor had he followed him. But later on, as I said, he followed Peter, who used to give teaching as necessity demanded, but not making, as it were, an arrangement of the Lord's oracles, so that Mark did nothing wrong in writing down single points as he remembered them. For to one thing he gave attention, to leave out nothing of what he had heard and to make no false statements in them. Basically, what we see in this quote from Papias is three things. Number one, Mark indeed wrote down the gospel. It was from Peter. It was Peter's memory, and it's not necessarily in order. It's almost like, it's almost like Peter's going, oh, yeah, and another thing. And by the way, there was this one time when we went to you know, Jerusalem. And, oh, yeah, don't, don't let me forget this. And Mark is just frantically trying to write it down as, as quickly as, as Peter would talk. And if we know anything about Peter's personality, you know that he probably talked a lot, and he probably talked quickly, remind you of anybody. So internally, we also see some evidence, not just from external evidence, but internal evidence. It is super fast paced. Dozens of immediately or suddenly. We also see that Peter is present for all the book's events. He's there. Eyewitness accounts of what Peter saw. And interestingly enough, the gospel of Mark 
highlights many of Peter's failings while leaving out some of his better moments, okay? Peter's better moments, uh, for example, when Peter walked on the water. That was one of his better moments. It was a short moment because then it kind of fell apart, but one of his better moments, that whole story is omitted, omitted from the Gospel of Mark. Or when Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, on this rock, meaning you, Peter, I'm going to build my church, that story is not in the Gospel of Mark. It seems that maybe Peter left some of those stories out as a way to not shine the spotlight on himself, um, maybe to have some, some modicum of humility. So we don't know for certain, but it's pretty, it's pretty likely that Peter was involved with the writing of what we call the Gospel of Mark. So the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Peter, ultimately it is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hope that as we go through this book, you know, we'll take some selections, we'll take some snapshots like what Peter did, like what John Mark did. But through it all, we want to see the story of our Jesus. God is writing a grand story. God is writing a, a narrative, redemptive history, the likes of which the world has never seen. And we find ourselves here at the beginning of the climactic moment where Jesus enters into the scene. So with that said, by way of introduction, let's jump in. Verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Okay. This is an announcement. Gospel. That word carries meaning. In the ancient world, gospel simply meant good news. For example, if a group of soldiers would go off to battle somewhere and they defeated the enemy soldiers, they would send a, a messenger, they would send a herald back to the city with the good news or the gospel that our soldiers have won. In fact, the messenger is called uh, an, an angelos, a messenger like an angel, and it's you angelos, good news, good message. That's the word gospel. The words are very, very related. It's a good message. So this is a good message. This is an announcement. This is news. When I, um, I, you know, when I read princess stories uh, to my daughters, okay, not just for fun on Saturday night, when I read princess stories to my daughters, very often it starts out with something like, there was a king and a queen and they gave birth to a baby and an announcement went out through all the kingdom to come to the ball or to come to the thing and the fairies come and it all goes downhill from there, right? Saying, right? We know the form. This is kind of like that. An announcement, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark's gospel is the only one to start with that term, Jesus Christ, right out of the gate. The Son of God. Now, those are two titles. Christ is the New Testament Greek word for Messiah, the Old Testament Hebrew word. It means the anointed one, or it means the king the one who would come. The people of God, the people of Israel, the Jews had, had believed that God had promised to them a king. The king would come, he would restore Israel to its rightful place, God would lead and guide and love them and God's kingdom would be established on earth. So when the original readers of this book would have heard Jesus the Christ, they would have heard this is the good news of the announcement of a king. And then we see the second title, the son of God. Son of God means exactly what it means. It means the Son of God. It means that He is divine. And so people will speak of this as a way to prove the divinity of Jesus. But there's another element that's really interesting. Son of God was a common phrase in the non-Jewish, the Gentile, the Greek-speaking world. Do you know why? The Roman Empire, let me do a little Roman history for you guys. It's very fascinating. You love it. Trust me. The Roman Empire 
had been a republic. Julius Caesar seized control. You can read about all this stuff in, in, in history. Check the internet. And Julius Caesar seized control and sort of united the first Roman Empire, although he never really made a good run at it. He died, and he was given the nickname Julius the Divine. He's a god. This great king who united the Roman Empire, he's, he's a god. And his adopted nephew, who went by the name Caesar Augustus, became known as the Son of God. So when Jesus was born, when this story was being written, there was a man ruling over an empire named Caesar Augustus, the Son of God. So when Mark says that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, he is saying to the Jewish audience and to the Gentile audience, this one is the king. He's the king. And this is the announcement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, it's not Mark's gospel or Peter's gospel. It is Jesus' gospel. It is the good news of God sending his son, Jesus, into the world on a rescue mission to bring his kingdom to earth, to save sinners like you and I, to, to bring healing where there has been pain, to bring peace where there has been war, to bring joy where there has been sorrow. This is the story of a king. And his name is Jesus and I love that it says the beginning of the gospel. Nowhere in this book does Mark say the end. Wasn't that a great story, kids? On with your lives. That's not what Mark does. Mark says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he just kind of runs through, and then he runs out of breath. And the idea is the gospel continues on. The good news is still good news. Amen? The gospel still changes lives. The message is still relevant for us. 2,000 years later, I am absolutely you know, stoked out of my mind to tell you about Jesus Christ, the king, the one who is the rightful ruler of God's kingdom, the one who brings peace, the one who brings salvation, the one who brings joy. It's Jesus, the beginning of the gospel, and it doesn't end until the day that Jesus returns. In the meantime, we still proclaim this same message. We still herald this good news, amen? That's the announcement. Now, now, verse two, the backstory, okay? The prologue. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, like just right in your face, who will prepare the way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Any, uh, any uh, Lord of the Rings fans out there today? Okay. Any Star Wars fans? Nerds, all of you. I'm just kidding. But every good story, every epic needs a prologue, right? What's the backstory? Catch me up to speed. I don't know what's happened here. So in Lord of the Rings, it's, you know, the story about the ring and, you know, Sauron. And he tried to, I'm going to reveal too much about what I know. I may have gone to all three midnight showings of the Lord of the Rings movies in college. I can't confirm or deny, but I probably did. Um, but the Lord of the Rings, they take the first, you know, what, seven, eight hours to do prologue and kind of set up the story. In Star Wars, it's the yellow running letters, the greatest prologue that the world has ever known, right? The yellow letters. Here's what's happened. Here's what catches you up to speed. We're about to jump in both feet, but you need to know something before we get into this story. And that is what Mark is doing. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That verse is actually from Malachi chapter three. And then the second part is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That's from Isaiah. 
So he takes a verse from Malachi and a verse from Isaiah and he glues them together. He says, the prophet Isaiah spoke. Unless you think he's ignorant or, or twisting the text, it was a common practice to refer to all of the different prophets by Isaiah, the greatest one of the prophets, the, the, indeed the great prophet. He, he quotes just a little snippet. Mark, Peter, doesn't even have the time to really truly set it up. It's like the scrolling yellow letters in Star Wars, like there's a rebel alliance and there's Darth Vader and they're fighting. Like that's all we get. It's like, wait a minute, there's more to the story, right? And so I actually wanna do this. I wanna go back into Isaiah chapter 40 and look at this for a minute because there's some really important backstory for us to understand. If you have your Bibles, flip back to Isaiah 40. It's, it's roughly right in the dead center of your Bible. Let's read what the prophet Isaiah says to the people of Israel. This is roughly 500 years before Jesus was ever born. Long time before Jesus was ever born. This is what God says to his people through the prophet Isaiah. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. This is gonna be a, a comforting word. This is gonna be an encouraging word. And cry to her that her warfare has ended. The people of God at this time had been taken away into exile. They'd been pulled out of their homes. The city that they loved had been destroyed. They were people without a home. They were people whose city had been decimated. They need some comfort. They need to know that war is going to be over. Know that your warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. The people of Israel also knew that they were in this position because they had been sinful against God. So their iniquity is pardoned. That's good news. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And here we go. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Like all the stuff that's really hard, all the stuff that's rocky. You know, you talk about going through a, a rocky patch in your life. God says, I'm gonna smooth it out. Stuff's gonna get turned upside down. The mountaintops, those who are prideful and on top, they're gonna be made low. Those who are down in the bottom in the valley, they're gonna be lifted up. We're gonna deal with the inequity and the injustice in the world. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse six, a voice says, cry. God's saying, cry, say something. And I said, what shall I cry? Here's what you're gonna cry. All flesh is grass and it's beauty like the flower of the field. Things that we think are, are really permanent, they're really temporary. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If God says he's gonna do something, then you can bank on it, you can bet your life on it. God's promises are secure. Everything else you think is secure is not secure. Everything else, mountains, valleys, you think they're gonna last forever, they don't. It's like grass and it's like flowers, but when God speaks, that can be trusted. That's why we are a Bible church because we believe that the Bible is the word of God and I would bet my life on the words contained in this book. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Here's what God promises, you ready? Get you up to a high mountain. That kind of sounds like Pastor Travis, like get y'all up to a high mountain. That's, I love how many y'alls he does when he's, uh, when he's doing the announcement part, that's great. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, there's our gospel. Lift up your voice with strength. 
O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Anybody ever been afraid to proclaim the message of the gospel? Anybody ever felt a little bit crazy when you said, yeah, I believe he was killed and then he rose again? Fear not. The word of God is secure. Behold, here it is. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. God himself is coming. The Lord is the one who is coming. Look at your God. It's not just that a king is coming. It's not just that a redeemer is coming. It's God himself. And his recompense comes. He will judge for those who do not surrender to him, to those who do not trust in his godship, his lordship, his rulership, there will be recompense. But he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. To those who are his, he's very tender. He will carry them in his bosom and he will gently lead those that are with young. What a good promise. When the readers of Mark's gospel would have heard that one sentence, likely this whole passage would have been called to mind. Isaiah was very important to the life of the people of God, the early, you know, the early believers in, in, for sure, but all the way back to the time of the writing of his book. It'd be like me quoting you know, one of the lines from Beatles' song. You would instantly know, like, oh, there's more to it, right? All you need is love, and you guys are thinking about that song. That's kind of how it works. It calls to mind one sentence, and you look back and see what's the context, what's the message that he's saying there. Let's look really briefly at Malachi chapter 3. I want to read this to you as well. The other one that he references. It actually starts by Malachi just talking about, like, where's the God of justice? There's so much injustice. Where's, where's the justice? Where's the God who said he was going to do these things? And this is what God says through the prophet Malachi. He says, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So John the Baptist, we're going to come back to this in a second, is the messenger, and he's going to go before me, God himself. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He's gonna clean some stuff up. You know, hot fire. If you... um, need to sanitize a needle or something like that. Fire is one of the ways to do it, or fuller soap. He's going to clean some stuff up. God himself is coming. Not just any king, not just any redeemer, but it's God himself. That is what the prologue is. That's the setup. That's what, that's what all the people have been waiting to hear. When will these verses be fulfilled? When will this stuff come to fruition? When will it be true? Not just a word, not just a promise, but when will we actually see it happen? And so here Mark says, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the one who fulfills these prophecies and these promises promises in the Old Testament. Now, let's look at the prophet. Let's look at the messenger here. Picking up in verse four, John appeared. Like, thank you. Any more details? Like, Star Trek materialized? Like what? Like, He just appeared. Oh, there's John. Where'd he come from? Don't worry about it. John appeared. Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Hold on to that phrase. We're going to come back to that again in a little bit. And all of the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. Um, After the first service, a couple grabbed me and said, hey, 
We were just there last week. We were at the River Jordan at the place where they believe that Jesus was baptized. It's a real place. This really exists. You can go there. Jesus was, I'm sorry, John was baptizing in the River Jordan and people came, they were confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair. And, you know, we think that's weird. They did too. That's why it's in here, okay? Like the dude wearing like a hair suit from the 70s, right? Like John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. That's a unique symbol because in the ancient world, the belt was one of the ways that they would show off their, uh, their wealth or their prestige. They would have different types of belts. You'd have badges or things you could put on your belt. The leather belt means he's just, he's a nobody. He's a pauper. And he ate locusts and wild honey. Mmm. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this is the, the prophet, okay? This is John the baptizer or John the Baptist. Sometimes people say John the baptizer so you won't get confused with the dom- denomination, the Baptists, and think that John was against dancing. Um, you know, that's just a side point, okay? John the Baptist, John the baptizer, either way, people will refer to him. He was the one who was baptizing, and, and there's a lot of different Johns in the Bible. Again, like I said, a common name. But this is, this is John the Baptist. And he played a unique function, a unique role in the preparation for the coming of Jesus, the preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And he preached this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that in just a minute here. But I want you to see six things about John the Baptist. I want you to understand six things that he says about him or six things that he does. So first of all, I want you to see that he was a bit of a celebrity. This verse tells us that all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. Now, does the Bible mean that literally every single person in Jerusalem and Judea got baptized by John? Probably not. But again, if this is kind of Peter's just hyperbole, like, man, everybody was coming out. Everybody was there. Just tons and tons of people. One scholar I read this week said that the best estimates that biblical scholars have is that 300,000 people came to hear the preaching ministry of John the Baptist. If that is indeed accurate, then that would be the largest revival, if I could use that term, that the world has ever seen. John the Baptist led a revival of, of possibly as many as 300,000 people. And most of those, many of those were coming out to be baptized by John. Many of those were skeptics and critics who came out to see what in the world was he doing, which, which is also leads me to uh, part two, was that he was a bit of an oddity. He was a bit of an oddity. You think it's weird that he wore a garment of camel's hair because it's weird, okay? You think it's weird that he ate bugs and it says, notice it says wild honey. It doesn't say like honey that somebody else went and picked. It's he went and got the honey. He's fighting off bees, maybe munching on one of those while he's waiting and he gets the honey right out of the comb and eats that himself like yum God, thanks for the meal. Back to baptizing, here we go. It's a weird dude. If I had a time machine, John the baptizer would be on like my top three to five list of you know, people to go visit and just see what that must have been a weird scene. Just a weird scene. I love it. His clothing would have evoked to mind the prophet Elijah. The camel's hair and the leather belt is more than just him being weird. In the Old Testament, there's a prophet named Elijah. Elijah's kind of like Superman. I mean, he is, the, he is one of the you know, biggest names, the most you know, just wicked, awesome prophets that the nation of Israel had ever seen. There's a story where King Ahab hates Elijah. These, these guys show up and said, hey, somebody said to give you a message, King Ahab. 
said that God's really mad at you and you're going to die. And King Ahab goes, who said that? And the guys go, I'm not really sure, but he had on a weird hair shirt and a leather belt. And King Ahab goes, Elijah. And he knew it was the prophet Elijah. Hated each other. That was a paraphrase. That's the first international Aaron's version for you. But it's basically what happened. You can check it out. It's in 2 Kings. The prophet Elijah was one of the biggest, most towering figures in the history of the people of Israel. And so when John is out in the wilderness dressed like him, people are going, whoa, what's he trying to do? Is he making a statement? Maybe Elijah's going to come back. Maybe this is the messenger. There's another interesting thing that John did. He's out in the wilderness inviting the people of God to follow God out in the wilderness to pass through the waters for the forgiveness of their sins. Who would that have reminded them of? Moses, the people of Israel. So John is, is he's more than just being kooky for kooky's sake. He has some purpose. He has some intention. I think, I think intentionally. I think John the Baptist intentionally set up shop, tried to evoke Elijah, tried to evoke Moses so that people would come out and hear the message that he was preaching of repentance. Third thing I want you to know about John the Baptist is he was possibly part of a group known as the Essenes. The Essenes, there was a lot of different groups back then. They had their Pharisees, you had your Sadducees, you had your Zealots. There was a group called the Essenes, and they were kind of the guys that would like move out into the wilderness and dig a bunker and store a bunch of canned food. And if anybody in here has a bunker, I apologize. We love you. Welcome to Sound City Bible Church. But that's kind of weird, right? And that's what the Essenes did. They moved out into the wilderness. Uh, how many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Raise your hand if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered about 60 years ago well, well-preserved scrolls, copies of the Bible that have been preserved for thousands, literally thousands of years. And it was a group called the Essenes that put them out there. So it's very likely, it's very possible that John the Baptist was part of that group. Number four, he is a relative of some sort of Jesus. The, the King James Version says cousin. Other translations just say relative. Maybe, maybe their moms were cousins and they were like second cousins twice removed. And by the way, if you actually think you know how that whole thing works, you don't quit lying. That second cousin thing is like made up by the English people and nobody really knows how to work that. So somehow Jesus and John were related. John's mother and Jesus' mother Mary knew each other. And actually when, when Jesus' mother Mary went to visit uh, Elizabeth, John's mother, the Bible says that while John was still in the womb, he jumped for joy when Jesus came in the room. And I love that because that means our homeboy John was excited about Jesus before he was ever born. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I love that about John. So he was related to Jesus. It's likely they knew each other, maybe interacted some as children. We don't know for sure, but it's very, um, very possible. Number five, he was the greatest prophet to ever live. And that's not just me saying that, that's Jesus. Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, verse 27, 28, I should say, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. He's the greatest prophet who ever lived. He's the greatest man who ever lived. And number six, love this about John, he was humble and he knew his place. We already saw in this verse in Mark that he says, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. But there's another verse in John chapter three where the disciples of John were having a conflict with the disciples of Jesus. The disciples of John were jealous that Jesus was stealing all of their baptizees. So John's disciples go to him and they say, hey, John, Jesus is taking all the people we were baptizing. And John said, 
It's great words. He said, look, I must decrease and he must increase. May that be our prayer too, church. Like John the baptizer, may we say, I need to decrease. Less about me, more about him. Fewer eyes on me, more eyes on Jesus. If you have the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody, if I have the opportunity to uh, teach you the Bible, if we as a church have an opportunity to see hundreds or thousands of people meet Jesus and grow in their faith with him, which I do pray for, we must remember that heart and that attitude of John the Baptist, I must decrease and he must increase. Amen? That's what I want for us as a church going forward. I love that about John. He knew his place. And then lastly, we look at the message. This is what it says in verse seven. And he preached. Love that. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You know what's interesting is that his baptism, you could miss this if you didn't know, his baptism, what John was doing was radical. People didn't get baptized in the Old Testament with one exception. Well, two exceptions. The first one was the priest. They would go through some sort of a washing ceremony before they would become priests, but that's not baptism. It's not the same. The only time that people got baptized was when they were Gentiles and they wanted to convert and become Jewish, the people of God. So the Gentiles would go through a ceremony in which they would dip down under water, they would come up, they would speak the prayer, the Shema, the great prayer of Israel, and they would, they would have some sort of a ceremony where they would pledge their allegiance to the word of God, they'd pledge allegiance to the people of God, and they could convert from being Gentiles to being Jews. What John is doing is radical because he is saying to the people of God, he's saying to the Israelites, you need to be converted. You need to get saved. And their reaction would have likely been one of, how dare you? Abraham is our father. We are the children of David and Abraham and Moses. How dare you tell us we need to get baptized? But John said, you are a sinner and I am preaching a message of repentance and forgiveness. Listen, in our culture at large, the R word, repentance, is not a, uh, not a very lovely word. People don't like that word. And I would even go so far as to say there are many churches that are scared of the word repentance Sound City Bible Church, may that never be the case with us. We are not scared of the word repentance because when we say that repentance, it says that we are sinners. It says that we are born with a sin nature, that we are of our own nature and choice in oppositional relationship to God. But when we call people to repent, don't forget the second part, forgiveness, grace, I would love to tell you the good news about Jesus, but if I don't tell you the bad news first, you may not realize that there's a problem. I will say this, in the north end of Seattle here in the shoreline and Linwood and Bothell, the, the culture up here tends to be fairly comfortable. I remember we had an incident a few months ago here at the church where it was just a, a minor issue. There was somebody who was being a little bit disruptive kind of like a, um, maybe like a little bit schizophrenic or something, being disruptive. And so one of, the, one of the leaders called the police and said, hey, will you deal with this? I kid you not, the SWAT team showed up. I am not exaggerating. It was like five police cars and, and like armed people. Like, wow, the police in Shoreline were bored, okay? That's all, I could, that's all I could take. Like, we're pretty comfortable here. 
And many of us and many of our neighbors and even some of you sitting right here in this room right now think, I have no need of anything. I have money in the bank. I have a roof over my head. I have a retirement account. I'm doing good. But you don't realize that you are a sinner in need of God's grace. You who are here who, who maybe think you're Christians just because you try to be a good person or try to go to church, I need to tell you, you need Jesus. And John even knew this. He says, I'm baptizing you with water. What you need is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What happens to you on the outside is no good if it doesn't take place on the inside. And so it doesn't matter if you were sprinkled or dunked or dry cleaned. You need Jesus. You need Jesus to wash you from the inside out. You need Jesus to wash you from the inside out. Some of you here have been baptized with water, but you've never truly given your heart to Jesus. You need to become a Christian. You think that just because you're trying to be a good person, you're a Christian. No, being a Christian means you acknowledge that you're a sinner. You need forgiveness. You repent, you turn from your sin. Being a Christian means that you acknowledge that Jesus is the only hope. This indeed is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, that God sent his son in the world to live a perfect life, to die on a bloody Roman torturous cross on the third day to rise again, leaving the tomb empty, leaving death behind in his grave and conquering over our great enemies of Satan and sin and death, giving us hope not just for this life, but for the life to come. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's what I want to be the cornerstone and the foundation of this church as we launch out. Amen, that's the gospel. Some of you need to be water baptized, by the way, and we hope to celebrate with, with baptisms next Sunday during all three of our services. If you've not been baptized, I'll make an invitation. We're gonna look at when Jesus himself was baptized. We'd love to baptize you. Maybe all of you here have been baptized. Wonderful. Some of you have been saved. You've been converted. Jesus has done a work in your heart, but you've never followed through with that public act, that public declaration that says, I want to identify with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I wanna be washed clean of my sins. I wanna invite you to do that next week. Have you been baptized in water, but not the Spirit? Have you been baptized in the Spirit, but not in water? Look at it from both angles this week. I want to close with this thought. I really mean that, not just preacher clothes. All right. Thank God for backups. I want to close with this thought. Do you see all the preparation, all the work that God put into making the world ready for Jesus? See how the scriptures speak about Jesus? You see how the prophecies speak about Jesus? Do you see how John the Baptist came and spoke about Jesus and began baptizing people? I want you to think about this. What is it that God used in your life to prepare you to meet Jesus? Who are the people that God used to speak into your life so that you would hear the gospel message and repent and be saved. What are the situations that God used? What are the events and the circumstances? For me, um, my parents were godless pagan heathens, um, their words, not mine, and uh, living a wild life of rebellion, and the midwife who attended my birth was a Christian and invited them to church, and my parents got saved, and I was raised in a Christian home, and I got to know Jesus from a young age, because the midwife who caught me when I came out of my mother's womb was a Christian, and I think she said wow, these people are jacked up. This poor baby doesn't stand a chance. We need to get them to church. Who, who is it that God used in your life? Maybe, maybe this week there's a, a thank you or, a, or a, just some way of, of remembering all the work that God put into not just preparing the world for Jesus, but preparing you for Jesus. Think of all the work that God has done 
preparing us to launch this church. You know, as Shane was sharing earlier, God didn't bring him to Seattle six months ago just to join up with a church that was shutting down and then move back to Texas. God brought him here. I was realizing it was four years ago this week that I sat down with my family and my friends back up in Alaska. I said, hey, I think God's called me to Seattle. I'm going to go get trained in how to, church, you know, how to plant a church. Four years ago this week. What's the preparation that God has done in your life? If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, why are you here? What is God doing? How is he preparing you? Who is the person that just keeps dragging you to church over and over again? Why is it that you find yourself here listening to me rant and rave about a guy who lived 2,000 years ago? What's God doing? Is today the day that you surrender to Jesus? You stop pushing back? You stop running? You say yes to Jesus? Is that today? I want to call us to respond. We're going to respond in a couple ways. The first way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. So if the financial stewards would please come forward now, we're going to collect the offering. Um, as Pastor Travis shared earlier, there's, there's many ways to give. If you're making out a check, remember, Sound City Bible Church. If you want to give online, would encourage you to do that as well, if that's uh, convenient for you. But the, the most important thing is not how you give, um, the method that you give, but the heart that you give with. The most important thing is that you give with a heart of worship gratitude to Jesus, who has given us everything. He's given us his son. He's given us salvation. So I want to invite you to give with that heart and with that attitude. And while they're collecting the offering, I'll have the guys put some uh, discussion questions up on the screen for you to talk about this week in your community groups, in your small groups. So it says, a couple, couple questions here. So what does it mean that Jesus is both Christ and son of God? And how are those two terms related? Uh, second question, why do most Bible scholars believe that Peter is the source for Mark's material, and, and what's the internal evidence? What's within the book itself? That's a good question for some of you Bible nerds who want to kind of dig in and do some study this week. Why does, it, why does Jesus say that John the Baptist is the greatest prophet who ever lived? Another question I want you to ask, this is more personal, okay? Have you been baptized? I want you to talk about that this week in, in community group. It'd be a great discussion question. Have you been baptized, and what does it symbolize? And then lastly, I want you to share those stories. How did God prepare you to hear the gospel and receive Jesus? And what people or situations or events played into your conversion. So this would be a great week to reflect on that. How did God speak to you that way? I will post these questions up on our Sound City Online community. Um, invite you, if you don't have an account, sign up for one. We'd love to get you this so you can see these. We're also going to respond with the celebration of the Lord's table. We're going to come to the Lord's table. We take the bread. We dip it into the wine or the juice, depending on your conscience. And we remember that um, our God sent his son Jesus to die for us and to rise again. Uh, today, we've, we've seen this amazing story, this, this sense of urgency to look at Jesus. And so I invite you into that place. I invite you to look at Jesus and the story about Jesus. And so when you take the bread and dip it into the cup, I want you to do so from a heart of thanksgiving and worship to Jesus. And I would also say, if you're not a Christian, become a Christian today and take communion for the first time. You're welcome to. But communion is for Christians. We're also going to sing, and the band is going to lead us in some songs of celebration and rejoicing in the gospel of grace, that God accepts us just as we are. So I'll do this. Let's, let's stand together, and I'll pray, and then I'll invite you to sing and to respond to Jesus. Father, we thank you for the, the book of Mark. We thank you for the truth and the way that it invites us to not just see Jesus as somebody who's far off and distant, but really invites us to look directly at him, to look closely at him. God, I pray now as we respond, you'd give us joy, joyful response. May we be like the people who responded to John the Baptist, that we would come and give, us, give, you, uh, give you our sins and receive 
your forgiveness, but may we also be like John the Baptist himself and say, uh, may we decrease and you increase in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.